From the virtual newsroom of Impact Alpha, this is your Impact Briefing for Friday, September 24th. I'm Monique Aiken. Today, I'm joined by Full Cycle Stefan Niccolo to talk about Climate Week, climate action, and infrastructure justice. Hi, Stefan. Hi there, Monique. How are you? Good. But first, here's what you need to know from the week in impact investing. Climate Week in New York, alongside the UN General Assembly, tried to bridge the ambition gap. The week's theme has been getting it done, especially in the two months until November's COP26 climate summit in Glasgow. Among the private sector commitments this week, Breakthrough Energy Catalyst raised $1 billion to spur commercial adoption of direct air capture, green hydrogen, energy storage, and sustainable aviation fuel, among other emissions-reducing technologies. The Bezos Earth Fund committed $1 billion to conserve natural carbon sinks in the Congo, the Andes, and in the Pacific Ocean off of Central America. And Washington, D.C.-based Arcadia raised $100 million to bring customers to local community solar farms by giving them credits to their utility bills. Change.org, the big petition and activism site, converted itself from a for-profit public benefit company to a nonprofit to align its structure with its mission. More than 50 investors, including big names like Reid Hoffman and Bill Gates, contributed their equity stakes to the Change.org Foundation, which now owns 100% of the company. Here's CEO Ben Rattree. We went back to talk to investors about the challenge that we thought that we might face and continue to scale uh, globally as a um, uh, as a platform focused on democratic empowerment in the context of the decreasing trust in tech companies. And financial inclusion in emerging markets continues to attract a wave of investment. Lendable backed Singapore-based Finclusion Group, which has made loans of more than $300 million to 240,000 employees and employers in Africa. And Mumbai-based APNA raised $100 million at a valuation of $1.1 billion to match employees with companies in India. Labor in that country's e-commerce, delivery, and logistics sectors is in high demand. Impact Alpha subscribers got all of these stories and more in their email each day. Stefan, it's great to chat with you again. Thanks for making the time during what I imagine has been a very busy week for you. Likewise, it's been a busy week, but a productive one. We're feeling good. So we had you on our other podcast, The Reconstruction, earlier this week, and we discussed the connections between infrastructure justice and climate justice. And I encourage everyone to give that one a listen. But I wanted to bring you back to get your take on the state of play in climate action at the end of Climate Week here in New York and two months before the COP26 Climate Summit in Glasgow and with climate and infrastructure bills pending in Congress. How are things looking? So it's a good question. Um, You know, I think things are looking pretty good. It feels as though uh, the global communities kind of come here to New York uh, to make meaningful commitments. And it seems that industry is now uh, in a coordinated fashion also latching on to those commitments and making its own pledges. Um, I think this is a starting point for us to make sure that we can keep 1.5 degrees centigrade temperature increase um, in our sites. And you know some of the reports that we've seen to date have said that the current pledges as they exist won't get us there. Right, so we, we know that we need folks to double down. We know that we need to identify where we have levers uh, in our global systems, especially around where industry uh, can play a role. Um, and I think that'll help us to, to further advance this kind of 
march towards uh, kind of making the difference that we want to see and driving towards outcomes that are tangible. And all of this is, of, of course, in advance of uh, UN uh, COP26, uh, as you mentioned, in Glasgow, where I think things really start to, to cement and crystallize in, in ways that uh, will be beneficial for, for everyone if we can get it right. So we're feeling pretty good. Um, there's a lot of work to do and a lot of work to be done. But um, it's better to have this as a starting point than, uh, than perhaps where we started a few years ago, where we had to kind of you know, discuss the science as opposed to understanding it to be fact and then working off the back of that. And bringing it closer to home, you are a partner at Full Cycle, which has a very specific investment thesis, backing companies that mitigate short-lived climate pollutants like methane. How did you and Full Cycle come to that strategy? And can you give us an example or two of what you found? Sure. So early in, in building this thesis, uh, we identified that there is a significant disparity in the warming potential of shorter lived climate pollutants. These are greenhouse gases like methane or nitrous oxide or fluorinated gases. And uh, you know these are several dozen, if not several thousand times more heat trapping than CO2, specifically in the first 20 years of those molecules existence. Most of the science that we look at is based on a hundred year metric. So if you take methane, for example, you know, the common stat that you might read is that methane is 20 to 25 times more heat trapping than CO2, but that's on a hundred year basis. So that molecule is emitted and then heats, it traps heat over its hundred year lifespan. And the average is that it's 20 to 25 times more heat trapping than CO2. On a 20 year basis, it's actually 86 times more heat trapping than CO2, right? So what we're feeling and seeing in our destabilizing climate, in the weather events that we are all experiencing far too frequently is uh, the effects of a molecule that's way hotter, frankly, than we thought and is uh, having way more of a deleterious effect by virtue of that heat trapping than we previously thought. So that might sound like doom and gloom, but actually it provides a very clear opportunity. So instead of for uh, you know almost scattershot uh, approach of building the next generation of low carbon infrastructure, we now can identify where in the global economy methane in particular is emitted in abundance. Talking about fossil fuels, oil and gas, coal, uh, agriculture, especially things that rot emit methane. And so in identifying where uh, not only you have uh, methane being emitted in abundance, but also knowing and identifying these solutions the alternatives for that current state of infrastructure gives us an opportunity to, in a very surgical, very precise way, replace that infrastructure and drop emissions considerably, uh, especially when you consider it per, per dollar invested. So uh, one good example I can point to is, you know, we now know that it's the top 5% of power infrastructure that is emitting about 79% of the methane emissions related to that sector. That's a lever, right? We can figure out how we build the alternatives close to uh, the grids that are being supplied by that top 5% of power emitting infrastructure. And we can meaningly drop methane emissions in a very short period of time by building out the alternatives, the renewables and sustainable infrastructure that could replace that polluting infrastructure. And so full cycle is designed, it's purpose built for uh, to have the highest carbon return on investment. Uh, in a period of time that makes sense. 
And when we say carbon return, we're talking about carbon and its equivalents like methane, nitrous oxide, fluorinated gases. And so um, we built this to identify these levers and to take advantage of them and to create an investment opportunity for our partners that will allow them to participate in that transition um, and also have very high CROI, very high carbon return on investment in the time period in which it matters the most. So what are the economics or really what are the incentives as well? We talk a lot about carbon pricing and pricing externalities and natural capital pricing. What does that imply for the price on methane? We see some of these pledges going forth and the price of carbon must imply a price on methane. How does that drive investment decisions? Indeed. It's, um, you know, it's an exciting time, I have to say. It's, uh, we now see uh, some more uh, institutionally based coordinated efforts to get the voluntary carbon markets in line so you have consistency in accounting and pricing and frameworks for attributes for the credits. All of this is promising for this kind of new and emerging market that we see uh, coming out, which is carbon, right? Carbon is going to be the story of the 21st century, how we deal with it, how we sequester it and its value um, and its pricing in the global operations of how our systems operate. For us, you know, we're obviously targeting to have the highest efficacy in the reduction, the aversion, the drawdown of these molecules, but we don't underwrite for a price on carbon. Um, and so we're, we're quite conservative, right? We underwrite so that our assets that we're building are first class, uh, well uh, built, income producing, high quality assets so that have the ability to deliver value um, and stand alone by virtue of that. However, we know that when we do have uh, mechanisms that will apply for the pricing um, and the issuance of these top tier high quality credits that we can point to by virtue of our infrastructure operating, um, we know that'll add quite a bit of, of uh, returns for us and for our, our investors. So, you know, we're in a pretty good position because we will be building the assets, we'll be issuing and originating a lot of these credits. I think, um, you know, by the time that that happens, we'll, you know, have markets kind of uh, more mature, more, more situated and, and coordinated uh, to do that. And I think generally what we're, what we're seeing in the market is uh, a real pricing of what it will cost to do business, right? The real cost of doing business has to include the externality that's typically been excluded. And that's the price of emissions. That's the cost of actually operating that refinery or the coal-fired plant or the traditional industrial farm all of that um, is incredibly emissions heavy, specifically for shorter lived climate pollutants. And so if you price in ostensibly the cost of emitting uh, those gases, you know, industry will make different decisions and countries will make different decisions. And I think you're starting to see that in these commitments that are being made, you know, by countries like China, which has just uh, emerged to say it will no longer finance uh, uh, coal infrastructure abroad, that's a big deal. Um, through their Belt and Road strategy, China has been financing quite a bit of fossil fuel infrastructure. And you'll see kind of a, a little bit of a different bit of behavior from uh, countries like Australia, which is uh, exporting so much coal that when you consider its scope three emissions, meaning when you consider the, the end of life of the products uh, that are produced, you're talking about a country that is not 1.2% of global emissions, but is 10% of global emissions. That's a massive number. And so, you know, having a price on carbon and its equivalents uh, really is the, the biggest thing we can possibly do here to make sure that we have a real accurate way of thinking about our operations and doing business 
And most importantly, we have mechanisms to then draw down and account for the emissions that would uh, price them into the cost of doing business that allow us to actually you know, meaningfully incorporate the cost of everything um, as we operate and make better decisions by virtue of that. And what of the social cost for people? Um, certainly these emissions based on their locations, depending on the kind of awful emitter we're talking about, landfills or other things, have a health impact too. And that's not been priced in. And so when we think about incinerators and agriculture, livestock, things that rot <laughs> that you talked about before, there's also that problem that affects humans, not just uh, governments at a big abstract level, but real people. Um, and, and where these projects are cited is also part of this conversation. So that's also part of the opportunity. How do you see that? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's it's what we have to uh, fundamentally consider and price in, you know, and these are um, this is having a price on methane and, and carbon is really a way of incentivizing and disincentivizing some of the behavior that we've seen in the past where we've built a lot of the kind of uh, emitting uh, infrastructure in communities that perhaps didn't have the political power to stop that or to, to say we don't want that infrastructure here. Um, you know, we are talking about areas in the United States, for example, you know, we have an area in Louisiana along the Delta of the Mississippi called Cancer Alley, you know, like talk about a social cost on carbon and emissions. And in this case, the toxicity, um, of the chemicals that are also leached into the water table and emitted into the air, you know, for whole communities of people, uh, that, you know, unfortunately didn't have a say for whether or not that infrastructure is running 24 hours a day, seven days a week in their backyard. And so, you know, the social cost of carbon really does include what it will take to make sure that folks are uh, healthy and that we can maintain healthy communities. And I think we learned from this last year and a half, really, there, there, there is uh, no such thing as a healthy economy if, unless you have a healthy population of people, right? You can't have sick folks, you can't have um, you know, the, the kinds of health issues that we've seen emerge from uh, both infrastructure, but also from our, our, the way we've designed cities and transportation grids, the way we've built our lived environment and the materials that we've used, all of these things have a cost. And so when we think about, you know, the social cost of carbon, we have to consider what the effect has been on folks' health and could be, and what it will take to uh, disincentivize the egregious and excessive emissions of those gases causing those health effects in those communities. And as we get closer to the problem, we talk a lot about those communities might also have these answers and have people with critical insights for the solutions that we need now. How are you seeing innovations and business models emerge from the communities most impacted by climate change really be part of this conversation as well? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, the first thing I'd say is I'd start with our business model um, and I'll say that because, you know, we designed Full Cycle to ostensibly work within um, what we typically call a deployment gap that exists in the market. A lot of these technologies that emerge into the market today will uh, run into what's called a deployment gap. And what that means is that, you know, after getting academic and government funding, after getting a little bit of perhaps angel or venture capital, you know, uh, the technology will get built. You'll see a pilot or a demonstration of it in the real world. And then the task of commercialization typically falls solely on the entrepreneur, yet they can't access the public markets or the debt markets or attract 
kind of larger infrastructure funds that you typically see in building airports and bridges and toll roads and those kinds of things. And so full cycle fills a critical need in the market in that we identify technologies right at the point of technical validation. So we know the tech works. And now it's a question about what commercialization can look like. And we are the agent of commercialization for those technologies. And so what's what's great is that we end up finding and working with a lot of entrepreneurs and founders who nece didn't necessarily have a path forward to expressing that technology. And you know, this is not uh, a consumer product play. This is not, you know, these aren't technologies that will deliver things to your door faster. This is critical technology. We call it we call it climate critical technology, meaning it has to exist. We have to be able to implement this tech in order to bridge to a low carbon economy um, and and meaningfully, you know, uh, keep ourselves on track for a one and a half degree world. And so that deployment gap is actually really important for what happens next. And we find ourselves working with entrepreneurs in such a way that because we are committing to build their uh, technologies, we, we uh, get first rights to do that with our companies, they now see a path towards commercialization, towards bringing their innovation into the world, and most importantly, being in a position in a couple of years after we've built several, several projects to access the public markets, to go out to the large sovereigns and infrastructure funds to get large-scale financing for bigger and bigger projects. So that initial co commercialization needed um, a solution, and so we built our model to do that. I think in terms of the, the business models that we're seeing and, and the companies that we're seeing, I mean, it's just the best time to be doing this work in this space, right? We're, we're really just seeing um, uh, tremendous innovation. I'll, I'll point to two, one we've invested in, one that is not an investee, but I think is a good example of the, the kind of diversity we like to see um, in founders. So one is uh, our most recent investment. It's a company called InPipe. Uh, InPipe creates a... Uh, a kind of pressure reduction valve technology that can capture the kinetic energy of water moving through a municipal water supply and convert it to clean baseload power for the grid. So if you think about solar and wind um, and all of that development that's happened, all of that's intermittent power. It requires at least uh, the sun shining, the wind blowing, and more importantly, a storage solution so that when those two things aren't happening, you still have the access to the, to the power that you've originated. In this case, for InPipe, uh, baseload power means that it's always on. And so that looks a lot more like what you'd see out of fossil fuel infrastructure and what makes fossil fuel infrastructure so uh, appealing and accessible all over the world is that it's baseload power. It means 24 hours a day, you've got uh, electrons flowing to the grid. And so InPipe's a great example of innovation that uh, can fundamentally change the game. And we're really excited to roll out roll out their tech. And I think the other is, um, and it's a little bit of a shout out to uh, to a friend, but if you think about, you know, some of the uh, folks who've come out of maybe the the less traditional channels to develop a lot of innovation in this sector, I think uh, very very uh, specifically about Jessica Matthews, um, who's a Nigerian American uh, inventor, uh, innovator, CEO, and venture capitalist, and um, she founded Uncharted, you know, which started with of all things a soccer ball. Right, a soccer ball that had a mechanism inside of it that captured the kinetic energy of kicking the ball and would uh, store that energy in, in the form of uh, a light that uh, the students and the, the children could use at night to study and learn and, and light their, their homes and environment. Very simple innovation, nothing terribly crazy, but the kind of innovation that then led to a whole suite 
of products and opportunities that uh, she and her firm are, are rolling out. And it's the kind of entrepreneurial story that we like to see um, and that we want to support in this market, because ultimately we're talking about um, a way to build forward that is more equitable, that is more, uh, frankly, resilient, that includes more voices and people who are innovating who don't typically get the look from your typical venture funds or your typical private equity funds. New market, new problem, means just a whole new subset of new solutions and new people. And we're really excited to work with a lot of these entrepreneurs uh, now and going forward. That's going to do it for your Impact Briefing this week. More all day at impactalpha.com. Thank you, Stefan. Of course, my pleasure, Wendy. And thanks to our producer, Isaac Silk. Subscribe to get full access to the site and the daily brief. Right now, we're offering podcast listeners $100 off their first subscription. Go to impactalpha.com slash subscribe and use the code briefing100. Thank you for listening. I'm Monique Aiken, Managing Director for TIP, the Investment Integration Project. Make sure to check back for next week's briefing. And until then, take good care.